This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. More low-income people in Colorado have health care today than they did in 2013. That's because under Obamacare, the state opted to expand Medicaid, the government health care program for the poor. Two new reports offer insight into what that's meant for Colorado and into some of the unintended consequences. Phyllis Resnick wrote one of the reports for the Colorado Health Foundation. Uh, they fund health reporting on CPR, by the way. Also with us, Emily Johnson of the Colorado Health Institute. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. So, Emily, both your groups recently released reports on what the Medicaid expansion has meant for Colorado. Uh, let, let's start with you. Uh, your report looked at the cost and benefits of adding more poor people to the health care roles. What surprised you? I think what surprised us the most about Medicaid expansion was the sheer size of the enrollment. So uh, a number of experts prior to Medicaid expansion um, predicted how many people would enroll, and this included the estimates that were in the fiscal note attached to the bill that expanded Medicaid. As it turns out, enrollment was around 71% higher than predicted, so mm. it was a lot larger than a lot of experts thought it would be. And of course, what comes with that is is it did cost more than a lot of people thought it would, it would cost. Um, but one thing that is important to remember, though, when we're looking at Medicaid expansion is that at this point, the federal government has picked up around 97% of those costs. Um, but I would say overall, it's just the sheer size of it that surprised us the most. So one concern is that people on the Medicaid uh, on Medicaid have trouble accessing doctors because doctors don't get paid at the same rate to treat them as privately insured people. Could the lower cost of health care be because some of these folks aren't able to get in to see doctors? It may be. We do find that people on Medicaid report a more difficult time accessing doctors in a timely manner than people with other types of insurance do. So that may be part of the reason. Um, costs per person were actually lower than expected. So everyone is concerned about health care costs, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and much uh, many worry about the Affordable Care Act, and that it's going to drain uh, state and federal coffers. Mm-hmm. How much has the expansion cost the state? At this point, um, the expansion for the newly eligible population, so these are the folks who weren't eligible for Medicaid prior to the expansion, hasn't cost the state anything. I see. Now, the state has paid a little bit of money out of its general fund for what we call welcome mat enrollees. Okay. And these are Coloradans who were eligible for Medicaid prior to expansion, but for whatever reason hadn't enrolled. And... You know whether it was because they had a family member who got Medicaid coverage or just the increased media attention around Medicaid, something made them realize that they were eligible and they enrolled in Medicaid um, after expansion. And the state continued to pay for 50% of that population, as it always has. And so that cost the state... Um, around $40 million so far. And we project that that number will, you know, continue to rise coming from the state general fund. So essentially, they're more expensive, these these welcome mat mm-hmm. people. Is that right? They're more expensive overall in that sense to the state. They, they're the only source of state spending right now. Yeah. And, and, and that's going to change starting on January 1st of 2017. So in around six months, um, Colorado will start also picking up some of the tab for those newly eligible populations as well. So Colorado is going to foot a lot more of the bill in 2020, mm-hmm. right? Correct. How much more will Medicaid cost the state compared to before the Affordable Care Act? So we estimate that in 2020, which is when um, Colorado will be paying for 10% of the newly eligible population, we estimate that the state will be spending around $222 
million per year on Medicaid expansion. And that's around 7% of what we paid for Medicaid prior to expansion. But one thing that's really important to remember about that number is that the majority of that will come from something called the hospital provider fee. And the hospital provider fee was a special fee that was set up um, to cover Medicaid expansion populations. It doesn't come from um, the average Colorado taxpayer. It is a fee that hospitals pay that is then matched by the state government, and hospitals get that money back in form of Medicaid reimbursements and other types of payments. Uh, so, so uh, bottom line, the question is, you know, how is this going to affect the average taxpayer, people yeah. listening right now? People listening right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's a complicated, it's a complicated. It's a very, yeah, yeah, it's a very complicated question. I mean, you know, some of the money that we predict Colorado spending in the future will be coming from the general fund, which is something mm-hmm. Colorado taxpayers do pay into. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, once you get people insured, and we've seen a lot more people are insured in Colorado <laughs> than ever before. Um, you know, they there is evidence that that will make people more productive. There is evidence that... Um, that has huge impacts on their health and individuals' economic well-being um, kind of in the longer term. We know that medical expenses are the number one reason for bankruptcy in the country. And so, you know, the uh, it's it's hard to say. It is right. a complicated question. But I think that there are going to be benefits that individuals will see, although we can't ignore the fact that there are also going to be some costs coming out of the general fund. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're talking with Emily Johnson of the Colorado Health Institute about the effects of Colorado's decision to expand the number of people eligible for Medicaid. That's the public health care program for the poor. Johnson authored a recent report on the expansion. Also here is Phyllis Resnick, who co-authored a separate report for the Colorado Health Foundation. Phyllis, your report paints a positive economic picture of the expansion. What did you find in terms of the economic impacts for the state? We found that the additional spending that will take place to cover the newly enrolled um, Medicaid enrollees will have a positive economic impact on the state. And what we mean by that is because the majority of that funding is coming in from the federal government, it's a new infusion of essentially cash into our state that then starts to generate an economic multiplier, what we call. So hospitals have a little more money. They hire some more people. Those people have some more money. And then at night, they may decide to take their family out to a restaurant or go shopping. And so that creates consumer demand and perhaps some jobs in those sectors. And you can see that over time, that $1 can start to multiply into larger dollars. So our analysis tells us that because of the large federal infusion of dollars to support Medicaid expansion, our economy is about 1% bigger than it would have been had we not expanded. And you also say average incomes are already higher and predict that they'll go up more? We do. So over time, um, that multiplier effect will continue to operate in the economy and we will see household incomes and the number of jobs in the economy and just the, the sheer size of the state economy continue to grow to the point where in the year 2035, we anticipate that it'll be about 1.4% larger than it is today. So, so I guess give some specific examples where the benefits are good from, from this situation. Absolutely. So clearly the benefits for anyone who receives health care coverage, the, the sort of personal benefits are greater. But we also found that there's a sort of macro benefit. There's a benefit overall to all Coloradans um, that resulted from the decision to opt into the Medicaid expansion. And that's largely because we are getting this this 
very substantial amount of support from the federal government to pay for the newly eligible Medicaid enrollees. Yeah, but but I guess Medicaid costs are still coming from taxpayer dollars and 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 you know namely federal dollars that everyone you know pays into. Uh, it's borrowed money, I guess, that affects the federal deficit. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. And we've spent a lot of time thinking about that issue, certainly. Um, The truth of the matter is is that Coloradans were going to be responsible for those dollars regardless of whether we expanded Medicaid or not. We didn't have the option to opt out of the taxes. Hmm. We only had the option to opt out of the program. So had we decided to opt out of the program, we would have paid the taxes regardless, and then that money would have then gone to other states to support their Medicaid program. So given that situation... I think the state made a very wise decision to opt into Medicaid expansion. And while we heard the state is not paying much right now for the expansion, uh, the cost will gradually increase for the state. Isn't that a concern for you? It would be a larger concern for me if it were the general fund that was going to be responsible ultimately for the state share of the expansion population costs. But as you know, we've talked about earlier this morning, the state share will be paid for by a dedicated fee that the hospitals pay. So it's less of a concern for me as long as that structure remains in place. Emily, do you have any comments on maybe some of these hidden benefits or positive benefits that we're seeing here? Um, I think that the point that Coloradans were not able to opt out of the tax is a really, really important point to make. Um, Also, that a lot of the um, federal money for Medicaid um, comes from things like excise taxes on medical devices and these other new taxes that aren't, you know, an income tax um, is a really important thing to note. We also, uh, while our analysis didn't look at the larger economic benefit of Medicaid in the state, we just really looked at what the state has paid so far. You know, there is, as I said, ample evidence that getting health insurance has numerous positive effects for um, individuals, both on their finances and on their health. Eventually. Eventually, eventually, yeah. yeah. And at the Colorado Health Institute, one thing we're really looking forward to tracking in the future um, are those kind of longer-term health benefits for people who um, who gain insurance through Medicaid. So it's sort of hard to say, you know, only a couple years in with health insurance what the long-term effects will be. But, you know, getting preventive care services and getting those types of coverage can have really, really important effects for people's long-term health, and that's something we'll continue to track. Phyllis? And something else I would add that we're seeing, and again, we'll have to track it over time and see if it persists, but... There is evidence that the Affordable Care Act overall, with its initiatives to make care more efficient, the delivery of care more efficient, has been working. We see we have seen a, a you know, not insubstantial decline in per enrollee costs. Mm. And so the study that we did at the Colorado Future Center um, is actually an update to work that we had done two years ago. And Based upon the work two years ago and our most recent estimates, we see per enrollee costs coming down, you know, pretty substantially. So in a way, we've got a win-win. We're covering more people. And because of the efficiencies that appear to be starting to take hold, we're covering those people at a lower per person cost than we thought we were going to be. But final question for you and briefly, since we're nearly out of time, what if the federal government in the future pulls back on its commitment to pay these costs for Colorado? Well, certainly that would be a problem. My um, sense is that it would be very unlikely that the federal government will pull back on its responsibility. I think it's much more likely that they will honor what is in the law. Thanks to the both of you. Thank you very much.
Phyllis Resnick co-authored a recent report on Medicaid for the Colorado Health Foundation, which funds health reporting on CPR. Emily Johnson authored a separate report for the Colorado Health Institute. Find links to the reports at CPRnews.org. Now, Hispanics make up a large percent of newly insured Coloradans, and Hispanics across the country saw some of the biggest gains in health coverage under Obamacare. But for those in Colorado, there are still some disparities when it comes to health coverage. CPR's health reporter John Daly has that story. 19-year-old Cecilia Loya is a community college student from Commerce City. At the beginning, well, we had no Medicaid. She says for years, her family basically did without health care, Unless it was an emergency. We didn't want to go because we, we couldn't afford, you know, a doctor's appointment, dentist appointment, any other case like that. Her dad owns and runs a small concrete company, and her mother is a homemaker. As a child, Cecilia was covered for a time by CHIP Plus, the public low-cost health insurance program. But she says for a long time, her family was uninsured. When Medicaid expanded in Colorado as part of the ACA, more than 300,000 people signed up, including Loya and her parents. Now I'm able to go to the dentist, and it doesn't come out of my pocket, and as well as, you know, going to a doctor's appointment to get a checkup or anything like that. Hispanics like Loya represent a large share of the Coloradans who've signed up for insurance under Obamacare. According to the annual Colorado Health Access Survey, the Hispanic uninsured rate has now dropped 10 percentage points, down to less than 12 percent. I think it's had a a huge impact. Jim Garcia runs Clinica Tepiac. The clinic serves a heavily Hispanic working-class neighborhood north of downtown Denver. Its patients include undocumented Hispanics who don't qualify for health insurance and legal residents who do. I think it's it's been very positive, you know, for, especially for the low-income members of our community that hey, we're, we're going without insurance. Yeah, you know, they were just kind of hoping and, and rolling the dice, hoping that no one got really sick. But with the gains have come challenges, according to Juan Espino. Espino worked as a health coverage guide, signing up new insurance enrollees. I think a lot of families have definitely benefited. But he says it was a steep learning curve. For many families to understand everything from premiums to deductibles to in-network providers. A lot of people just really don't know what, what it meant to have health insurance. It was very new to them. Despite gains in coverage, the uninsurance rate for Hispanics still more than doubles that of non-Hispanic whites, according to the Colorado Health Access Survey. That survey also found a growing number of Hispanics also feel they're not getting the care they need. Espino says some are struggling with the costs that come with health insurance. That includes both the newly insured and Hispanics who already had health insurance before the ACA. Something that I've heard a lot is that their premiums are getting a little high. And and also their deductibles are high. Hispanics can expect to hear a lot about the pros and cons of Obamacare in the coming months of this election year. That's an ad from the well-funded free market advocacy group, the Libre Initiative. In 2014, it took out ads aimed at linking the state's incumbent U.S. Senator Mark Udall and other Democrats to Obamacare and health care costs. Health insurance doesn't equate to health care. That's Daniel Garza, the group's executive director, a former George W. Bush White House staffer. He thinks the topic is still fertile ground, but won't say specifically what ads the group plans for 2016. He says it will actively highlight the ACA's shortcomings with Hispanics. A lot of Latinos are now withholding health care because they can't afford the deductibles or the out-of-pocket costs. Democrats and progressives are expected to counter those arguments, by spotlighting coverage gains among Hispanics, 
It's a fast-growing demographic that now numbers more than a million people in Colorado. That's a fifth of the population in a state that could help determine both the presidency and control of the U.S. Senate. I'm John Daly, CPR News. Coming up, classical music recommendations to make your summer sing. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. It's June, which means classical music fans in Colorado are about to be very busy. Summer festivals here put on hundreds of concerts each year. That's the orchestra from the Colorado College Summer Music Festival. Their 2016 season begins Sunday in Colorado Springs. Classical festivals are also set for places like Aspen, Vail, Central City, and Breckenridge over the next three months. Brad Turner, CPR's digital editor for music, is here to sort through a few highlights of Colorado's upcoming summer classical festivals. Welcome, Brad. Thanks, Nathan. Good to be here. The Colorado College Summer Music Festival, which we just heard from, starts on Sunday? That's right, and... The Colorado College Festival is a great example of what a lot of music festivals in Colorado do. Hmm. They are a training ground for the professional orchestral musicians of tomorrow. So you have music students who are in college, grad students, um, really at the beginning of their careers, learning the ropes on a really broad scope of orchestral repertoire. Hmm. It's an intense three weeks at Colorado College. They're going to play a lot of music. They're going to put on a lot of concerts. And uh, like I said, a lot of the other festivals in Colorado do this. The National Repertory Orchestra in Breckenridge, Music in the Mountains in Durango is a smaller one. And Aspen Music Festival and School in Aspen actually has more than 600 students each year. Well, let's hear a little more of the students or young professionals in the Colorado College Festival Orchestra. And they're playing music by uh, Bela Bartok. Yeah, Nathan, it's it's such a great piece. It's this classic orchestral music, but it's very tricky. It's very modern. And it doesn't get played as often as, say, Beethoven or Mozart. This is exactly the kind of music that uh, a young up-and-coming musician would want to go to a festival to mm. learn how to tackle. And now a lot of these festivals bring world-class musicians to town, and some of them perform at multiple festivals around the state. Right. Uh, these, some of these big festivals draw such huge names and such interesting performers that maybe you haven't heard of. Um, a great example of someone who's playing multiple festivals is a violinist named Augustine Hadlick. He's a German violinist. He's 32. And he's playing two concerts at Bravo Vale and then two right after that at the Aspen Music Festival in early July. He has such a fascinating story. He was a, a child prodigy on the violin and when he was 15, he was horribly injured and mm. burned. And doctors told him he might never play again. Well, he did play again. And not only that, he became one of the best violinists on the planet. So I want to share a little bit of music from him. This is uh, Augustine Halleck playing the Sibelius Violin Concerto, which he performed last summer at Bravo Vale with the Philadelphia Orchestra. <laughs> You 
You know, that was such a powerful performance last summer at Bravo Vale, and it was a great example of what's so special about going to see these summer music festivals. Not only was the orchestra sounding great and the soloist playing beautifully, but it was this awesome setting in the Vale Valley. You can see the mountains and the sky. The concert takes place at sundown, and it's, uh, it's just a great way to hear live music. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking to CPR Classical's Brad Turner about a few of the summer classical music festivals taking place around the state. Brad, you mentioned the Philadelphia Orchestra at Bravo Vale, which traditionally brings some very famous orchestras to Colorado each summer. This year's, there's going to be a fourth orchestra coming. Right. So Bravo Vale is the summer home. They build themselves as the summer home of the three big symphonies, uh, the New York Phil, the Philadelphia Orchestra, both huge historic symphonies, and uh, the Dallas Symphony. This year, there's a fourth. It's the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields. That's an an English chamber orchestra, uh, which means they're a little smaller than your typical orchestra. There are 44 members, and it's a little more intimate. And they are fantastic. They've been around since the 1960s, and they have become one of the most recorded ensembles in the world. They're now led by violinist Joshua Bell, who's very well known as a, as a musician in his own right. And this is their first year here. They're going to play uh, three concerts at Bravo Vale this summer. This is, of course, from Vivaldi's Four Seasons, which they'll play June 26th at Bravo Vale. It's a, it's a great recording of the Four Seasons because you can really hear the intimate sound of, of uh, Academy of St. Martin in the fields. And it's a big piece for them. That, that, a different recording from the 1960s really put that orchestra on the map and was a, a sort of a blockbuster classical recording. So far, we've focused on orchestral music, but there's some really unusual modern music being played at these festivals, too. There's a few performances of music by a composer named John Luther Adams. Yeah, Nathan, this is an exciting uh, summer for fans of contemporary music uh, in Colorado. Uh, John Luther Adams, if there's a composer of the moment, I think it's him. He won the Pulitzer Prize a few years ago. He tends to compose these sort of environmental pieces that that sort of take in the surroundings. And... Bravo Vale and Aspen Music Festival are collaborating on two performances this summer. And the Crested Butte Music Festival and and the Breckenridge Music Festival are also playing some of his pieces. Uh, When he won the Pulitzer, it was for a piece that sort of turned an orchestra into a a simulation of an ocean tide. Uh, That's the short version. And over about 45 minutes, the the sound sort of grew and swelled. And then it, it went out like a tide going in and out. The piece that's going to be heard in, in uh, Vail and Aspen this summer is a percussion piece called a Nuxuit. Uh, about 66 musicians will play it, and you play it in the open air, and it starts out with sort of uh, uh, ambient environmental noise, and then the drums start to build, and they build, and, and then uh, there's a huge crescendo. And what's so interesting about that piece, and obviously that's not the type of thing you hear on classical no. radio very often, um, is that the audience sort of interacts in the sense that they can actually walk around 
in between the performers and take in the performance for different from different vantage points over the course of an hour. And now we can't do a summer classical festival roundup and not talk a little more about the biggest one in the state, the Aspen Music School, uh, fe- the Aspen Music Festival in school, rather. Right. And if you're talking about highlights from the Aspen Music Festival, you have your work cut out for you because (laughs) they present hundreds of concerts each summer in Aspen. They have multiple orchestras. They do string quartets and other chamber music. They're going to do several opera productions. Uh, The Pittsburgh Symphony is coming for a residency in late August. And they have very big international names. Uh, Pianist Jeremy Denk, uh, the Emerson String Quartet, soprano Renee Fleming will all be there. And on top of all that, they also run a school. As I mentioned earlier, there are more than 600 young musicians there learning from some of the best musicians in the world. And I I just find it fascinating uh, that so many of these top world-class musicians who perform there actually studied at the festival earlier in their careers and the previous generation of great musicians mentored them. And one of those former students is uh, soprano Renee Fleming, the famous opera singer. She sang the national anthem before Super Bowl 48 in 2014. She plays one of the first concerts of the season at Aspen Music Festival on July 3rd. Hearing Renee sing uh, four last songs by Richard Strauss makes me think of the stereotypical co- uh, classical music concert. You know, musicians in tuxedos, uh, an audience in formal attire. Does that translate to a summer music festival? You know, I know that that atmosphere can seem a little daunting to, uh-huh. to some people. That's one of the great things about summer music festivals. Um, even at the most uh, fantastic concerts, you have people there in khakis, sometimes in shorts. And it's just a very uh, approachable, casual environment. So um, even the orchestras are dressed down a little bit. And the audiences, I find them really relaxed and receptive and enthusiastic. It's just a a great atmosphere for a concert. So if, um, you know, what you have to wear and other sort of traditions, uh, if you find that daunting when it comes to classical music concerts, that shouldn't be a barrier at a lot of these festivals. And and finally, you've shared a few of your favorite picks, but there are hundreds of concerts this summer. How do you pick which ones to attend? I think you go to the ones that you can, Nathan, (laughs) because, you know, I was looking over uh, our classical calendar, uh, CPR Classical's calendar for this, and we have four or five concerts a day that make me say, gosh, I'd like to see that. And especially in, in later July when you have, uh, you have all the festivals going at once, especially the big ones. Um, just multiple concerts a day. And there's just no way to go to everything that interests you, especially since a lot of these concerts are, you know, two, three, four hours away yeah. uh, from the metro area. But uh, go to what you can. Go to the ones that look good to you, and uh, it's, it's always a great experience up, up in the mountains. All right, Brad. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Nathan. more Renee Fleming to go out on this segment. Brad Turner is CPR Classical's digital editor for music. Hear music from all of these festivals on CPR's classical stream throughout the summer, and you can find a roundup of 17 upcoming festivals around the state, plus more musical highlights at CPRclassical.org. Coming up, some summer book recommendations to go with your summer music. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Summer is the time for sipping iced tea by the pool or hanging by a fire pit and reading a good book. Kathy Langer is lead buyer with the Tattered Cover Bookstores, and Nicole Magistro owns the Bookworm of Edwards near Vail. They shared some of their favorite summer book picks with my colleague Ryan Warner. All of them are by Western authors or have Western themes. Ladies, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. It's great to be here. Let's start with you, Kathy, and fiction, since I think of novels as good summer reading. Absolutely. And I have the perfect summer read. It's a chilling, thrilling page turner, and it's called Security. It's by a Colorado author. Her name is Gina Walsdorf. She's a young, very sweet woman who's written the most terrifying book I've almost (laughs) ever read that I absolutely could not put down. It takes place just before a grand hotel called Manderley is about to open on the West Coast, and it's a five-star luxury hotel for politicians and movie stars who want a place to get away and kind of hide, and it's supposed to have the best security in the world. You say that this is... A bit like Grand Hotel meets Psycho. Exactly. Okay, and the Psycho portion? Well, the Psycho portion is they're planning for this grand opening, and there's only one glitch. One by one, the staff is getting murdered. It's a bit Agatha Christie in that regard. It's very much Agatha Christie. It's uh, terrifying. It's kind of funny, and uh, even though it's very bloody, I really loved it. It was one of those books where I was really sad that the plane was landing because I wasn't done with the book yet. I see. I see. You read this uh, in the air. Gina Wolsdorf's Security. Gina lives in Denver. How about uh, switching from fiction to some nonfiction? And what's at the top of your list, Nicole? A very entertaining uh, historical read called Rough Riders by the Colorado author Mark Lee Gardner. Now, this is the story of the Rough Riders who were rounded up from the West. Second in command was Theodore Roosevelt. This is during the Spanish-American War. In Cuba. And, yes, that's right. This is the adventure that they have and also a very bloody battle up San Juan Hill outside of Santiago, Cuba. Now, Gardner has written great adventure biographies of Jesse James and Billy the Kid and dispels some myths, but also does great storytelling in this book. I read this book and found it amazing how detailed he is. And now that might sound boring, right? You're thinking, oh, great, a history book filled with details. But he is so vivid about how he paints, for instance, the scenes of the battles. Absolutely. He's a great storyteller who kind of brings to life some of the everyday details of his characters and maybe what they were thinking. He also does a good job, I think, of um, not glorifying, but instead just putting himself right on the horse's backs, um, carrying the weapons, and also seeing the dynamics between different characters. And he really argues, Mark Lee Gardner from Colorado, in this book, that were it not for Teddy Roosevelt's service in the Spanish-American War, he might not have become president. And, And Roosevelt really had a sense that he needed to be in the military, in part because his father was not. His father did not fight in the Civil War, so he paid to have a substitute fight for him, which was quite common amongst the wealthy. So Theodore Roosevelt, that was kind of a shame on the family, that, or at least he felt that way. And he, he wrote later, he says, I didn't want to have to explain to my children why I didn't fight. Mark Lee Gardner, author of Rough Riders. He's from Cascade, 
Colorado. All of our summer book picks will be at CPRnews.org. Kathy Langer of The Tattered Cover, you have a nonfiction book as well focused on fire. Yes, it's called Fireline, the story of the Granite Mountain hotshots and one of the deadliest days in American firefighting. This is a chronicle of the um, devastating loss of 19 firefighters in 2013 when they were fighting the Yarnell Fire in Arizona near Prescott. Mm. Um, The author, Fernanda Santos, uh, who is the New York Times bureau chief for New Mexico and uh, Arizona, reported on the story and then went back and wrote this incredibly moving tale of what happened to the firefighters. The book opens with a chart of the 19 bodies, just kind of a graph showing where they fell, numbered, and then their names below it. And it's chilling to see that. And then she immediately goes into describing each one of the men, what motivated them to become firefighters. You get to know them well. And it's just so heartbreaking to read about these brave men, most of them young, with families, who really were dedicated to this career. She talks about the history of firefighting. She talks about um, wildfires in America. She goes a little bit into the environmental aspect of it. And I think it's so important to understand this, first of all, to to honor the men and women who fight these wildfires and also to look at what is happening with development in the West, and it's very concerning. But this is a page-turner. It's beautifully written, and uh, I just, I mean, it was heartbreaking, but I really loved it. For young readers, it is the 40th anniversary of the Newbery Medal-winning book, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. This is by uh, Colorado's Mildred Taylor, and I understand uh, to mark the occasion, all of her books have been reissued. Is that right, Nicole? That's right. There are nine books. They've all been reissued with beautiful covers. And um, this is a book that's near and dear to my heart. I remember Cassie Logan, uh, fourth grade. I read Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. It moved me. It was the first time I ever read about uh, what it was like to be in the South during segregation. This book takes place during the Depression. So it's we definitely can pull many common themes for today. And it's a great lesson in openness and in understanding. And I think that children and adults love to read this book over and over. Will you read a little to us? Sure. Here's something from the opening pages. Little man, would you come on? You keep it up and you're going to make us late. My youngest brother paid no attention to me, grasping more firmly his newspaper-wrapped notebook and his tin can lunch of cornbread and oil sausages. He continued to concentrate on the dusty road. He lagged several feet behind my other brothers, Stacy and Christopher John, and me, attempting to keep the rusty Mississippi dust from swelling with each step and drifting back upon his shiny black shoes and the cuffs of his corduroy pants by lifting each foot high before setting it down gently again. You find out early on this is not going to be an easy life these kids lead. That's right. And the feisty but naive voice of Cassie just comes through page after page. Kathy, you picked a novel in the young adult category, uh, maybe for kids to get some summer reading in while they're out of school. Uh, This is called Places No One Knows. Intriguing title. This is by a Denver author. Yes. Brenna Yovanoff is a Denver author. She wrote a young adult novel that she would have loved to read when she was a young adult in high school. Um, This is a novel about 
Waverly, who's a good, good girl. She's in all the right clubs and doing all the right things in high school and hating every minute of it. (laughs) And Marshall, who is a bad, bad boy. He's a so-called loser, drinks and smokes dope, skips school a lot. He's failing high school, but he is really a very smart kid. He just comes from a troubled home and doesn't know how to deal with his life. So the two of them are not friends. They really travel in completely different circles until Waverly, who is an insomniac, finds a way to sort of lull herself to sleep. And she discovers when she's actually dreaming that she is with Marshall uh, the first time in his bedroom, the second time when he's drunk at a party. And is this real? Is it a dream? And it's hard to know. But Brenna does this so well that as a reader, you you believe it. And the two of them get to know each other in... Uh, this dream state. In the dream state, but they still can't get together in their waking real world. And you want to know whether they do, if either one of them becomes their true self, because neither one of them is. And it's really well written. And I just loved it. It was the kind of young adult book I would have read at that time. They didn't have young adult when I was reading, so I was... It's, it's almost like a metaphysical Romeo and Juliet. Yes. You know, okay, will they be kept apart or, or not? Yes, yes. The book is Places No One Knows by the Denver author Brenna Yovanov. And finally, Nicole, for anyone who wants to do some healthy cooking this summer, you have a cookbook to recommend designed for athletes or, quote, anyone else who enjoys eating. Uh, it's called The Feed Zone Table by Chef Bijou Thomas and Dr. Alan Lim. We did an interview with Chef Bijou recently, and at some point he realized that he wasn't going to be a pro cyclist, so he turned to cooking. And along with recipes, uh, he talks about how important the social aspect of food is for athletes and really anyone else. At the end of the day, it was about returning some joy to the whole idea of eating. Instead of just looking at calories and numbers and fat and all the macros, there's a big chunk of what we discovered. Athletes perform better if they're happy. And they're, uh, you know, there's a few points in the day when you can actually sit down together with your teammates and your friends and your families and have a conversation. I'm guessing, Nicole, you see a lot of cookbooks. Why pick this one? I think this is perfect for the Colorado lifestyle because not only you want to get out there on your bike, you want to get out and really enjoy the mountains and reach your physical potentials and those heights. You also want to spend time eating with family, with friends, and why not be able to marry those two up? There are some awesome recipes in this cookbook. Give me an example. My, one of my favorites is the chilled soba with spicy red beans and poached eggs. Now, I'm a total sucker for poached eggs as protein. I just love that gooiness as it spreads over the soba noodles. There's literally some guilt-free desserts in here, too, which I totally love. Like? Um, The banana mousse dessert is made with molasses and maple syrup. You have Greek yogurt and walnuts. And kids love it. You can make it ahead. It can be for a party. It can be for your family night, whatever. Just fun, creative recipes. They're easy. If you are counting calories, it's all in the back. But it really is about the story of emotional and mental toughness as being part of having a balanced life. Well, thanks to both of you for your suggestions. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Nicole Magistro from The Bookworm of Edwards and Kathy Langer of the Tattered Cover Bookstore speaking with Ryan Warner. Their summer reading recommendations are at CPRnews.org. And speaking of books, what's a writer's worst nightmare? 
Well, try a blinking cursor that hasn't moved in the last hour. Writer's block can originate from a variety of sources, creative stagnation, personal or professional pressures, whatever the cause, few writers are immune to it. The 11th Annual Lit Fest and Book Fair at the Lighthouse Writers Workshop in Denver begins today, so we decided to revisit an exploration into the creative obstacle of writer's block. LitFest is a two-week event that offers juried workshops, seminars, panel discussions, and an assortment of classes with both Colorado and national writers. CPR arts reporter Corey Jones went to Lighthouse's home base a few years back. He spoke with some of the instructors and attendees about how they keep their creative juices flowing when they hit a roadblock in their writing. I'm Eleanor Brown, and this is how I deal with writer's block. Exercise is really important for me in writing. Um, It gets me up and away from the page for a while, and sometimes that's the best thing you can do. The trick is you do have to come back to the page at some point. Hi, I'm Steve Allman. Writer's block is fundamentally an illness of self-doubt and unrealistic expectations for yourself and pressure to succeed at the highest level. I've done my best work when I have set the bar low, just enough to get me to the keyboard without imposing any judgment until I can at least start to get warmed up a little bit and get some stuff on the page. Hi, I'm Tiffany Quay Tyson. I take a nap and let my sleeping brain work on the problem. It starts to put the puzzle pieces together and When I wake up, I often find that I have a lot of clarity and I can work on something in a way that um, moves me forward. Hi, I'm John Brem. One way that's worked for me very well is to write in a radically different form. So I have been writing uh, kind of long narrative poems and uh, went through a long period of feeling blocked. And I started to come out of it partly when I started writing in a much, much shorter form, and it was a form that I hadn't written in before. Lori Ella Miller, and the way I deal with writer's block is I go to the library and surround myself with books and just that energy that's there, and I sit down and and the words just seem to flow. LitFest runs through June 17th at the Lighthouse Writers Workshop in Denver. And on Tuesday, we'll have Denver author Wendy J. Fox on the program. She'll discuss writing about personal tragedy in fiction. And coming up, President Obama's view of America's place in the world from his remarks Thursday at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. And you're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. America cannot shirk the mantle of leadership or be isolationist. That's the message President Barack Obama delivered Thursday to graduates at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. After recognizing cadets who served in Iraq and Afghanistan, Obama said the U.S. remains the most powerful nation on Earth and a force for good. Then he took aim at people who want the country to be less involved in foreign conflicts. We have more alliances with other countries than anybody else, and they're the foundation of global uh, stability and prosperity. On just about every issue, the world looks to us to set the agenda. When there is a problem around the world, they do not call Beijing or Moscow, they call us. And we lead not by dictating to others, but by working with them as partners, by treating other countries and their peoples with respect, not by lecturing them. 
This isn't just the right thing to do. It's in our self-interest. It makes countries more likely to work with us, and ultimately it makes us more secure. So we need smart, steady, principled American leadership. And part of leading wisely is seeing threats clearly. Remember Ebola? That was a serious threat, and we took it seriously. But in the midst of it, there was hysteria. Flights must be banned. Quarantine citizens. These were actual quotes. Seal the border. And my favorite, uh, remove Obama or millions of Americans die. <laughs> That's an actual quote. The thing is, when we panic, we don't make good decisions. So with Ebola, instead of responding with fear, we responded with facts and responded with science and organization. And thanks to a coordinated global response enabled by the American military and our medical workers who got in there first, we stopped the spread of Ebola in West Africa and saved countless lives and protected ourselves. So, we've got to engage with the world. We can't pull back. Of course, leading wisely also means resisting the temptation to intervene militarily every time there's a problem or crisis in the world. History is littered with the ruins of empires and nations that overextended themselves, draining their power and influence. And so we have to chart a smarter path. As we saw in Vietnam and the Iraq War. Oftentimes the greatest damage to American credibility comes when we overreach, when we don't think through the consequences of all of our actions. And so we have to learn from our history. And that also means we're doing right by our men and women in uniform. So cadets, in your positions of leadership, you will be called upon to sustain this balance, to be hard-headed and big-hearted guided by realism and idealism, and even when these forces are sometimes at odds. We've got to have the realism to see the world as it is, where sometimes uncom uncomfortable compromises are necessary, where we have the humility to recognize the limits to what even a nation as powerful as ours can do, that there may be wars we cannot always stop right away or lives we cannot save. But we also need the idealism that sees the world as it ought to be, a commitment to the universal values of democracy and equality and human rights, and a willingness to stand up for them around the world, not just when it's easy, but when it's hard, because that's who we are, and that's American leadership. An excerpt of President Obama's speech to graduates of the Air Force Academy. It was the last time he'll address one of the military's four service academies at graduation, which had become a tradition for him. After the president's remarks, a jet used in the ceremonial flyover crashed outside of Colorado Springs. The pilot ejected and is fine and later spoke with Obama before the president boarded Air Force One. And that's our show for this Friday. Thanks to audio engineers John Zuko and Kara Schiff, my director Stephanie Wolf, and our producers Andrea Dukakis, Anthony Cotton, and Michelle P. Fulcher. Our executive editor is Ryan Warner. Our managing producer is Rachel Estabrook. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. 
connect with us on Facebook, CPR News, and of course email, click contact at the top of cprnews.org or comment at the bottom of articles on the website. You can also join the Public Insight Network to help connect your experiences to the news. Go to cprnews.org and scroll down to share what you know. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great weekend.